You are listening to the teaching podcast of the Crossridge Women Study of Mark from winter 2021. Hey, we are back for study number three. We are in Mark chapter four and five this week. So in these chapters, we see Jesus bringing the message of the kingdom. And he's teaching through this interesting medium of parables, which is a genre of teaching through storytelling. It uses metaphors and symbols more than giving concrete details or parables. Now, if you didn't watch our video about parables, that's a good intro to what parables are, why Jesus taught this way, and how we can understand them better. So I'm not going to say much more about that except for this. I've been thinking a lot this week about the way the use of metaphor draws the heart more fully into truth. Beauty and story are actually inherent to human understanding. And it was inherent to the discipleship of the people of God right from the beginning. Think about the temple in the Old Testament. It was full of art, and symbols, and imagery telling the story of God and the people Israel. It reminded them of their history, reminded them of what was true about themselves and their relationship with God. This was a form of teaching common to their religious experience. And so in a way, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would teach about the new kingdom in a way that draws on artistic storytelling and imagery and symbolism. But also, Jesus had to teach in this way because of the shocking nature of his message. It was totally unexpected. And therefore, Jesus, in a sense, needed to bypass the mind of his hearers to get to their heart, to give the truth time to grow in them, to see that while unexpected, this message of the kingdom was much, much better. We mentioned last week that the people of God had always assumed the kingdom to come would be a political and geographical kingdom. They believed that the Messiah to come would bring sovereignty to Israel, that they would be free from Rome's oppression and taxes and gods. And before we get too far, it's important to say that Christians today, I think, still fight for this kind of political gospel sometimes. Some fight very hard to have their country's laws echo their own Christian morals and values. And you know what? Rightly so. Most of those ethics and values, if accepted broadly across a country, I believe would bring about a semblance of human flourishing. But most often in these situations, I, I wonder if Christians are not fighting out of righteous anger or a pure desire to see their communities no real love, peace, and truth. Mostly, we're fighting for this political gospel so that we can feel safe and comfortable. And so we don't have to experience hardship. We really do fear suffering, both for us and especially for our children and loved ones. We don't want to be persecuted for our beliefs. So we think that if everybody just believed the same as us, or if the laws bend in favor of our ethics, our world will be actually much more comfortable. And we actually fear being different also. Partly because we want the affirmation that comes when others think the same way we do. But also because it doesn't feel safe to be different. And we want to feel safe. 
Life is way more dangerous if we are having to navigate people who are hostile to our beliefs. It's also much easier if we don't have to fight against the culture to teach the next generation what is true. Right? In fact, if the culture would just teach the same thing we believe, it would make our our job a lot easier, wouldn't you say? Well, we have to get back to Mark here, but I, I did want us to see that we're actually a lot more like the disciples and the Pharisees here in Mark than unlike them. That is in terms of the expectations we put on the kingdom of God. So what was it that Jesus actually taught about the kingdom of God then? Well, besides saying it was not the kingdom they were expecting, he said this weird thing in chapter 4, verse 11. He called it a secret. And if you read into that the wrong way, you might think it's sort of elitist, that it's a special club only open to those cool enough or smart enough or good enough to get in. But that's not what he meant. The sense of the text there in Mark 4 is that the kingdom of God is a mystery. There's a hiddenness to it. It is unexpected. Literally, it means that it is something that awaits interpretation or some kind of disclosure or help in order to be understood. Now, Jesus also said the kingdom is like a mustard seed, seemingly small and insignificant even, maybe. Yet in time, it grows into something big, something strong, something very significant, something that is a refuge and a shelter. And it doesn't depend on the efforts of man or woman, does it? The man who scatters the seed and goes to sleep there in Mark 4, he doesn't know how it happens, but somehow the earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. A fruitful harvest is revealed at just the right time. I think it's important for Christians to rediscover the truth of the kingdom of God today. It's not a business model, a way to gather more people or make more money. It's not a system of government or an earthly power structure. And it's not a geographical place here on earth or in some unknown spiritual afterlife type realm. Jesus said it's here and it's now. And he said the key to it is to repent and believe the good news that he is the king. God come to save. I think what I saw for the first time this week was that these parables teaching about the kingdom of God are actually answering the question, how do we respond to the kingdom? Let's come back to that after we see how Mark answers the first question, who is Jesus? In chapter 1 to 3, Mark said he was a king with authority. Now he wants his reader to see that Jesus is a king with power. And it is different. I mentioned before that authority is inherent positional power. While the word for power here, dunamis, is demonstrated miraculous force. Basically, exousia, or authority, like we saw last time, is what actually gives dunamis, or power. Now, the original reader needs to see Jesus' power because after understanding Mark's point that the king's kingdom is not what they expected, the original reader is left with some questions. You know, they've heard that Jesus has this authority 
but also that he's a, a different kind of king than Nero. So the real question is, does he have any power to help here in our earthly circumstances? What the OR is really asking is this, is Jesus more powerful than Nero? And so Mark undertakes to answer this question and he says, yes, Jesus does have power. And his power over every realm can have a big impact on very earthly things. What Mark wants the reader to understand here in chapters four and five is that Jesus has power to restrain chaos and evil and power to restrain suffering and death. And he compels his reader to believe this with these three stories, stories that are actually parables. In Mark 4:11, Jesus told the 12 and those who were with him that he had given them the secret or mystery of the kingdom. But to those outside, everything would come in parables. So what we can understand by this is that everything Jesus does, not just what he says, but everything he does has the goal of preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. It all has hidden and deeper meaning for those with eyes to see. Mark scholars call these enacted parables. So... Let's see what Mark wants to show us through these enacted parables. First, Mark shows us that Jesus has power over chaos and evil. So we often interpret this story for um, the storm. We ask really good intention questions like, what's the storm you are currently in? But that's actually not how the original reader thought about this. If you studied Acts with us, you've heard this before. But in the ancient Near East, the sea was actually a symbol of chaos and evil. And you see this throughout the whole biblical story. In Genesis 1, 1, the Spirit of God is hovering over the dark waters. We see it again in the stories of Noah and the flood. In Exodus, through the Red Sea, there's lots of imagery in the Psalms about this overwhelming sea. We see it in the shipwreck in Acts. And ultimately, in Revelation, we see this contrast that really calls it out for us. That in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21.1 says, the sea is no more. Now, if you're like my husband and you love the ocean, that verse in Revelation is not one you're going to choose for your life verse. Am I right? Like, who wants the sea to go away? I mean, Hawaii? Cancun? White Rock Beach? Well, I'm not sure that one really counts, so maybe we could live without White Rock Beach. But my point is, in the West, we're more likely to see the sea as a symbol of rest and relaxation and vacation rather than chaos and evil. But we really need to understand that that is not the mindset of the original reader or even the original audience that was in the boat with Jesus. And set aside the Western idolization of tropical seaside vacations, that mentality of sea as a picture of chaos is still actually a common mindset among our global brothers and sisters. So lots of you know my family uh, lived in Hawaii for five years when my kids were very young. 
we worked with an organization called YWAM, or Youth with a Mission. We were on the big island of Hawaii, and so my kids grew up with the ocean out our front lanai, and with lots of time in the pool and the ocean. So we taught them early how to swim when they were very young. And because my husband is a bit of a fish, which he inherited from his father, by the way, he passed on those Piscean genes, if you will, to his own offspring. Now, often the Hawaiians we met while living there were shocked that we would let our kids in the ocean or play in the waves because they'd say, it's dangerous. Lots of them wouldn't even go in the water. They'd go to the beach. They'd like have picnics and eat on the beach, but they wouldn't go in the water. They'd say it's unpredictable and there's danger in it that you cannot see. They had this saying, never turn your back to the ocean. It's chaotic and it can have dark and evil consequences. And it's not just about some of the creatures that lurk below the surface, although there is that. It's also the undertow. And uh, to be fair, we saw more than a few tourists get absolutely hammered by waves. Like you'd see the lady walking out into the ocean on a particular day that the surf was way higher than normal. And you think, I do not know if you know what you are in for here. And then inevitably you try to look away as everything sort of came undone. No pun intended. Um, (laughs) I, I mean, if you know, you know, but a person can get absolutely wrecked by one rogue wave. It can toss you and turn you so you, I mean, don't even know which way is up. And in the end, it leaves sand right down in the lining of your swimsuit for like a month at least. It's pretty on postcards, sure. But it is also dangerous. This is what we see in Mark 4.37. And this is what the original reader would have seen. Jesus and the disciples and a few other boats are crossing over the sea. And it says, a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. It's a picture of perfect calm in the midst of serious chaos, even evil. Now let's remember the context of the first people who who actually read Mark's gospel, the OR. They are in the storm, aren't they? They're in the middle of intense and often evil persecution. Now, their life is not calm. It's not just about some stormy circumstances for them. Their fate actually lies in the hand of a madman who loves chaos. And imagine what it means to them to see Jesus in the storm. He is not freaking out. He is not furiously bailing or hauling in sails. He's at rest. And then he exercises power over this dangerous chaos. He says, be silent. And yes, it is the same command, by the way, that he gave to the demon in chapter 1, verse 25. 
Jesus shows the same power again as he confronts more evil and chaos on the other side of the lake. And by the way, did you notice how Jesus is always just going back and forth across the lake? He just crosses over like it's no big deal, right? On the other side, after the storm, he meets legion, more chaos and evil. He is a very dangerous man. It says in the text that no one can subdue him. No one is strong enough to restrain him. Perhaps he's a bit typecast to remind the reader of Nero. Who can restrain this madman? Well, it turns out Jesus can. He can restore him from utter chaos to a right mind. Mark also shows that Jesus has power over suffering and death. We see it through these interwoven stories of two daughters, the suffering woman and Jairus' daughter. This woman had suffered for 12 years, it says. Verse 26 says the woman had suffered much and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. No one could help her. No one could ease her suffering. But Jesus could. One touch of his garment was all the power needed to do what many physicians could not. He has power to restrain evil and chaos, the power to restrain suffering and death. But one more thing Mark really wants his readers to understand about Jesus's power is that it challenges the typical power structures they are used to. It doesn't look like the power they are accustomed to from a ruler or a king. Rather than power over that dominates and even kills. It is power under that actually gives life. And it's enacted on behalf of not just those who are rich or have status or something to give in return. He'll use his power to heal a Gentile demoniac and a woman who, according to the law, is unclean, not to mention just made a whole crowd of people unclean as well. The interesting thing is that I think it might be common today among Christians who see the great power of Jesus rather than respond with awe and worship to actually want that power for themselves. I I tried to Google uh, dunamis, the power of Jesus this week. And do you know that every article I found was all about how to wield the power of Jesus for yourself? And there again, We want to put this modern understanding of power onto Jesus' character and then immediately make him useful to us rather than beautiful. Notice that Jesus does not use his power in the same way we expect people to use power. He doesn't use it to curry favor with important synagogue rulers by hurrying off to raise their daughters from the dead. He doesn't make a big scene or try to grow his platform with those in the area. He doesn't use his power to prove a point to those who didn't welcome him or his teaching in the synagogue. Instead, he only allows a few insiders to come and witness his power to bring life from death. And as outrageous as that kind of power is, It is demonstrated simply and with a small gesture and a few words. 
And people are told not to tell anybody. Jesus' power is different. It's a mystery. There's a marvelous hiddenness to it. And he doesn't always use it to act in the way we expect. Which brings us to Mark's final goal in these chapters to answer the question, how do we live in the kingdom? And I think what we're meant to see is that it looks like faith. Faith is what all of the parables in chapter 4 are about. It's the way we respond to Jesus as king, and it's the posture of living as a disciple in the kingdom of God. It is a bit of mystery, isn't it? Faith is not something you can muscle your way into all on your own, and we rely on God himself to initiate it in us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Ephesians 2 says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Faith might start small, but in time it grows into something strong and large and able to provide shelter and refuge. And it enables us to hear and welcome the word of God. Now, faith is one of those big Bible words that we throw around a lot without too much thought about what it actually means. The dictionary says it's complete trust or confidence in someone or something. The Bible says in Hebrews 11.1 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So sometimes people say that faith is believing without seeing. The definition of the actual word faith in the Greek, pistos, is the in the original language there. It involves three things. It's a firm conviction that leads to personal surrender, resulting in corresponding conduct. Some of you have heard me say that before, but let me repeat it again for you. It is a firm conviction that leads to personal surrender resulting in corresponding conduct. More and more, I think Jesus gives us a definition of faith in the first words he utters in Mark. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what you do if you have faith. You repent, you turn from whatever other kingdom you've been living for and serving and loving and you turn to Jesus as the true forever king. And you believe he is who he says he is. And that he will do what he says he is doing and will do. So we often use the term follow to describe that. And we've seen that here in Mark too. But don't reduce it to just the disciples to whom he explicitly gave that command. Because if you look closely, you'll see that there are others in Mark who are actually doing that as well. There's a recurring theme so far here of inside and outside. We saw it with Jesus' family, and we see it again at Jairus' house. And Mark is showing that there are some that follow, some that stay with Jesus, and they lean in closer. They have ears to hear, so they pay attention to everything Jesus says and does, and they know that they need Jesus' help to understand. For example, in chapter 4, those who demonstrate faith don't just walk away after hearing the parables and say, 
well, that was something. Or in the words of my teenagers, whatever that means. Look at Mark 4.10 with me for a minute. Mark 10 says it was, or he was alone. Now you can't see it, but I'm using air quotes here because he's clearly not alone, but he is away from the crowds. So when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. So the apostles and a few others have stayed with Jesus and they lean in and they ask for meaning and clarity of the parable. This is the posture of a disciple or a true follower of Jesus. This is what faith looks like, I think. It is understanding that truth is found in the teacher. So you go after it. And how does Jesus respond to those who who lean in, who stay close and ask for meaning, who have faith? He gives more understanding. That is the point of the parable of the sower. And Jesus says it explains all the other parables. You see, all of the parables are about what it means to receive the kingdom of God, to welcome it and live in it, to have it grow in you. That is faith. And to those with some measure of faith that enables them to step out and ask for more, more faith will be given to them. That's what the parable of the lamp says. Jesus intends to reveal truth. It is his joy to do so. The mystery of the kingdom is meant to be revealed at the right time. Nothing is concealed that will not be brought to light for those of us who simply pay attention to what we hear, respond with Whatever iota of faith we can muster and trust God to grow that faith into more faith, more understanding. So be encouraged. Those of us struggling to study our Bible or understand the plan or words of God or feeling a bit lost in the life of faith, Jesus's words from Luke twelve thirty two are for us. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. So to have faith is to believe enough to lean in and ask for more faith. But it's also to repent. And while we could spend lots of time talking about all the sin we need to repent of, I think there's one that is responsible uh, responsible for blocking our way forward in belief. And Mark says that's fear. I think fear might be humanity's biggest problem, the root of our sin issue. You know, I used to think that was selfishness and pride, and that's definitely there. But I'm beginning to see that even that grows out of fear. Humans fear a lot of things, primarily death, and then any other threat to our own well-being and flourishing. Our whole life is spent mitigating our fears. How do we prevent what we don't want to happen and ensure things will turn out for my well-being and my flourishing? You may have noticed that fear is a repeated theme in each story or enacted parable here in Mark 4 and 5. So first, the disciples. They are afraid in the storm. Jesus tells us that's their problem. Remember how Jesus was sleeping during the storm? 
Now, to a reader, that could either mean that he's not worried or that he is totally uncaring. And I think that's maybe what the disciples think, isn't it? Keep reading for verse 38. It says, so they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care? We're going to die. I actually think this is a common response to God in the middle of chaos and evil. Don't you see the storm, God? Don't you see this chaos? How evil this is? I'm certain this question is on the mind of the original reader. Don't you even care that we are perishing at the hand of Nero? Oh man, (laughs) this question. It's our question too, isn't it? Jesus answers them with what really seems like condemnation in 440. And I think it's even wrongly led many of us in the church to respond harshly to those with fear and anxiety. But Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I actually think Jesus was reminding them that they were asking the wrong question. Instead of, don't you care that we're perishing? The posture of faith, that of a disciple, should be to ask, what does this mean? To go to the teacher and ask for his help to understand. We're in a storm here, Jesus. What do we do? But fear prevents that faith posture, and it goes immediately to accusations against the character of God. Did you notice who does respond in that kind of posture, even in the face of their fears. Some pretty unlikely characters demonstrate faith here. First Jairus, an important leader in the synagogue, he casts off fear of fellow man and humbles himself, this great synagogue leader, to beg at the feet of Jesus to heal his daughter. He is certain Jesus is the one who holds the answers to her illness. And when he hears the news, his daughter has died, Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. Don't be afraid of death, repent of that. Believe that little seed of faith, Jairus, that caused you to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus in the first place. And then there's the suffering woman. No one can help her. She's a woman and she's unclean, but she believes if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. It happens just like she believes, doesn't it? Immediately. But then Jesus notices and she falls down at his feet again in fear, knowing he could call her into account in the face of purity laws for her uncleanness. But Jesus says, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Don't fear. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. It looks a bit different in the story of Legion, but it's there too. Only it's the people who are afraid. Afraid once they see what the power of Jesus is able to do, destroy their livelihood in the form of a herd of pigs. Isn't it interesting that they find Jesus more dangerous than they ever thought Legion to be? Probably because he was chaotically predictable, Legion, 
and his evil didn't really encroach on their comfort or their economy. So they too end up begging Jesus for something, but they beg him to leave their region. You'd think they might want Jesus to hang around, seeing as that evil is still out there, the pigs having died. Who knows who might be the next victim of the demons? But they beg him to leave. The way Jesus' power might disrupt their comfort is more dangerous in their eyes than the evil lurking outside of them. But Legion is begging too. After initially falling at Jesus' feet and being made well, he follows after Jesus and he begs him that he might be with him. And if you are wondering if that is the same repeated phrase used to describe the apostles in 314, you are right. This man, once possessed by evil, is now possessed by faith in Jesus. He has become a disciple. So perhaps that's what the OR is meant to understand here. They are imprisoned by evil. They are suffering and facing death. But that is actually not the worst evil there is. The sin inside them is still worse. And to be a kingdom citizen in the face of this hardship is not to ask, don't you even care? Because Mark has already shown us that Jesus is full of compassion. And he uses his power for the least likely people. And he is ultimately concerned that we find our way to human well-being and flourishing through faith in him and repentance from all other idols. It is his good pleasure. He delights in giving you the kingdom and its full harvest. Peace. Joy. Love even patience to wait out the waves breaking into the boat. Let us be the kind of women who fall at the compassionate feet of Jesus, who ask him not for more comfort or safety, but for more faith. May we be people who depend on him to do whatever it is he can and will do. Knowing that at the very least, because he is mighty to save. But at the very least, this posture on our knees and this position at his feet is possibly the best place to ride out fear, pain, and suffering anyway. Three questions to consider as we end. First, What evil, suffering, and death are you currently asking Jesus to restrain? What does it mean if he does not enact his power in the way you expect him to? Second, where in your life are you asking the question, don't you care? And three, what does it look like instead to ask him, what does this mean? And are you willing to take that posture this week? Let me give you those questions one more time. First, what evil, suffering, and death are you currently asking Jesus to restrain? 
What does it mean if he does not enact his power in the way you expect him to? Two, where in your life are you asking the question, don't you care? And three, what does it look like instead to ask Jesus, what does this mean? And are you willing to take that posture this week? Let's pray together. Jesus, we have seen your power here in the book of Mark and many of us in small and yet significant ways we have seen it affect our own circumstances. God, we are in awe of you. You are so great and mighty and we are so small. God, we are prone to fear. We confess it. We are afraid for ourselves. We're afraid for our children, for our nation. We are afraid for so much. But you have authority. Lord, we believe that you have redeemed us from sin. And you have broken our bondage to fear by your power. And though that does not mean Many of us don't still struggle with it regularly. It does mean we now have a place to take it. Please give us faith, Jesus, to come to your feet. Forgive us for asking, don't you care? And remind us by your spirit that you have given us to ask, what does this mean? We are forever grateful and in awe of your great joy in giving us your greater kingdom. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear above all other kingdoms in your beautiful, powerful, and compassionate name. We do ask all of this. Amen.